Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and for the opportunity to reflect on important matters and learn from you. We pray that you'll help us. In Christ's name, amen. I've got a cold. I've got a summer cold. So I've got, I'm sort of like in my Dayquil fog. You know how that works. Uh, so what I, what I thought would be good to do today, uh, this is a departure from Westminster Confession of Faith again, but I think it's worthwhile reflecting every once in a while on the inf- influence of the Christian faith on culture generally, but uh, p- politics and our national heritage specifically. So since this was um, Independence Day, you know, the week we celebrate Independence Day, I thought it'd be worthwhile to look at the Declaration of Independence and uh, reflect on the uh, philosophical and theological underpinnings of it. Because I, I think that a lot of folks uh, fail to appreciate that that's the case, that we wouldn't have the Declaration of Independence if it wasn't for the Christian faith. What we have in Western civilization is something pretty amazing in the history of the world. Um, the Christian faith has shaped the world in so many ways that we don't fully appreciate, that we take for granted things, that we think, uh, we've come to think of them as sort of like, well, everybody knows that. But actually, that's not the case. For the longest time, there are lots of things that people didn't take for granted or know about. So uh, a remarkable book. Every once in a while, there, are, there is actually a book that's worth buying that's published by like a, like a secular publisher. <laughs> this is uh, published by Basic Books, which is kind of a lefty publishing house. I don't know if you're familiar with different publishing houses and what their rep- you know, kind of the reputations that they have. But Dominion by Tom Holland. So it's, a, it's a basically a treatment of how the Christian faith changed the world, specifically uh, the Western world initially and now the world at large. Tom Holland. Holland, as in like, you know, the country Holland. So anyway, um, he's an atheist. And essentially he says in the book, and this, this has been like a landmark book. Sometimes there are landmark books that just kind of like affect the larger intellectual milieu in ways that some of us who aren't kind of connected to that, you know, part of the world fail to sort of notice or appreciate. But this is one of those books. So essentially what he says, uh, how Christian, the Christian revolution remade the world. And, uh, you know, it's gotten great, great reviews from everything from the New York Times to Newsweek, The Economist, The Guardian. You know, so it's like all of the all of the like uh, legacy institutions think it's a great book. But what's remarkable about it is this is an atheist who's saying, I'm really glad the Christian faith changed the world. He's a classicist. It means that he studies, uh, you know, antiquity, the first, the classical world. And uh, one of the things that he noted, in fact, let me, let me uh, I posted something on social media today that was, directly related to this. So let me read it for you, because I think it helps to put things into perspective. Um, So, um, 
While studying the ancient world, Holland writes, he realized something. Simply, the ancients were cruel, and their values utterly foreign to him. Spartans routinely murdered imperfect children. The bodies of slaves were treated like outlets for the physical pleasure of those with power. Infanticide was common. The poor and the weak had no rights. How did we get from there to here? It was Christianity, Holland writes. Christianity revolutionized sex and marriage, demanding, demanding that men control themselves and prohibiting all forms of rape. Christianity confined sexuality within monogamy. It is ironic, Holland notes, that these are now the very standards for which Christianity is derided. Christianity elevated women. In short, Christianity utterly transformed the world. An endorsement from an atheist. By the way, uh, we've got a podcast coming out tomorrow uh, about atheists endorsing Christianity. It's actually a movement. (laughs) There are a lot of atheists who realize that they don't have anything to offer. What you get when you just have atheism is either, well, Nietzsche or Marx, and that's it. Anyway, so with that in mind, um, I thought it would be good to, to look at the Declaration of Independence and reflect on how the Christian faith informs it. So this is a little booklet you can get from the Cato Institute, and uh, it contains an introduction, a preface which explains sort of the historical context uh, within which both the Declaration of Independence and uh, the Constitution were published, uh, were created. And uh, so with that in mind, I'd like to just kind of proceed. So even the state of Washington acknowledges in its constitution that there is the, a supreme ruler of the universe. Let me, let me read it for you, in fact. So this is the constitution of the state of Washington. You can actually get it. It's a lot thicker than the American constitution. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so some of you know that I'm a candidate for uh, city council uh, in Battleground. And uh, I thought, well, with the, one of the things they say when you, when you, you know, are requesting to be you know, a candidate is uh, you need to support and defend the United States Constitution and the Constitution of the state of Washington. I thought, well, I better like review <laughs> what I'm supposed to defend. So I didn't ever read this, the Constitution of the state of Washington, and I was pleased to read in the preamble this. We, the people of the state of Washington, grateful to the supreme ruler of the universe for our liberties, do ordain this Constitution. First line, everything else follows from that. Something to think about. Something maybe to remind your neighbors about. (laughs) Anyway, um, so let's take a look at uh, the Declaration of Independence because obviously on July 4th, we celebrated Independence Day. And that's when this this declaration was signed. So I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read selected portions. It's not a terribly long. Have you ever seen the declaration? It's like half a page. It's a big page in small lettering, <laughs> but it's not like going on forever and ever and ever. Um, so this is uh, the, uh, the action of the Second Continental Congress, uh, July 4, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events, 
It becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. A decent respect for the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that, whatever, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute a, a new government, laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such, uh, in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Okay, so that's the, the opening to it to the uh, um, declaration. Uh, a couple of other things uh, that are worth uh, reading. But when a long train of abuses and us- usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them to absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government. Um, Then, uh, a couple of other lines. Here's an interesting line. So this, of course, was composed and signed in 1776. Our uh, Constitution was composed and ratified uh, in uh, 1787 and finally ratified in 1789. And yet, in the Declaration, they refer to a Constitution. So let me read that for you. This is talking about the king, and he has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our constitution and and unacknowledged by our laws. I want to reflect on that a little bit with you in a minute. And then at the very end, we therefore, the representatives of the United States of America and General Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies uh, and of right ought to be free and independent states. So, some things to think about here. Um, Anything that sort of struck you as noteworthy before I jump into examining things? Yeah, Victor. But going back to the, the idea that Christianity has changed the world as we know it, I've been reading Eusebius, and I'm at about year 160 right now, and he's talking about the martyrdoms of men and women and children in France, which is called Gaul at the time. And when you read it, you just kind of wonder, what are they thinking, you know? And, um, you know, just horrible things that they did. And another 150 years later, which was Eusebius's time, sort of a little further after that, there was a radical effect on, that Christianity had on the known world. And it didn't take but just 300, say, 25 
years or so. Yeah, it takes a while for these things to work their way into a culture. Early on, it changed, it turned the world upside down. Yeah. Well, we already see that in the book of Acts. These are the men who are turned the world upside down. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's, let's jump in here. So I want to think a little bit about political philosophy. So political philosophy is something that perhaps is a term that's not familiar to you, but political philosophy is something that goes way, 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 way back, and it's a division of ethics. So in other words, political philosophy has to do with morals. Um, it's not just simply um, like protocols. The protocols, the sort of the standards, the laws, are always based on some moral order or some understanding of things that you know, sort, of, uh, sort of implies a moral order. So, you know, whenever, you know, when pe- some people say, you know, we don't uh, legislate morality, actually, that's absolutely stupid. It's all we do. <laughs> that is what legislation is. Uh, it's uh, saying these are the moral standards that we're going to enforce. Now, we might choose not to enforce certain things because of the difficulty, uh, you know, that, would, you know, enforcing such things would entail, or maybe the, the creating a kind of government that's just too powerful and, we, and could be misused or we fail to acknowledge certain other moral uh, truths by overemphasizing these truths. You see what I'm getting at? So we, we choose not to enforce certain things because it would violate other things because we have to balance these things out. So there's a lot of uh, reflection that should be um, you know, engaged in when we think about how uh, the political environment should be structured and administered. Um, so now, whenever you talk about morals, of course, you can't help but talk about what is the basis of the, that morality. You know, what is it? Is it just what we want? Is that we, These are things we like and those are things we don't like? Well, what about the people who like the things we don't like? And what about, you know, things like sati? So, for example... Sati. Are you familiar with Sati? Sati was the practice of throwing the widows of Hindu uh, men who died on the burning pyres. <laughs> so you, you lost your husband? Well, <laughs> uh, you know, since you go through everything together, <laughs> you have to die with him. You know, some people thought that was great. The British didn't. The British actually outlawed it. British actually outlawed a sincere religious practice. He said, we don't burn our wives, and this is our colony, and you're not going to do that anymore. There you go. So you assert certain moral norms, uh, even though maybe some people don't like them or don't agree with them. Um, the Declaration uh, is, a, a, when you really think about it, is not a secular creed. In fact, it is a creed. What we're saying is that these are truths that we believe. It's a, it's a, in fact, uh, G.K. Chesterton called the United States a country with the soul of a church. And this is what he was getting at. He was talking about the American creed. And he says, you read the Declaration of Independence, and it reads like a creed. This is the American creed. So there are certain things that, are, that uh, we as Americans believe. And we believe them uh, because we believe they're truth, truths, not just you know, things that we desire. And uh, the Declaration provides 
a framework for interpreting the Constitution. So this is the thing. If you've read the Constitution, you know, you've probably noticed that it's not entirely exciting read <laughs> because it's basically talking about structures and centers of power and authority and stuff like that and how these different things should relate to other things and so forth. But uh, it doesn't explain it. In other words, it doesn't provide you with that sort of framework to understand why things are set up the way they are. They just say these, the, they're set up this way. This is the way we're going to set things up. Um, so uh, the, the, the Declaration gives us the intellectual, moral, spiritual framework for understanding why we've established the Constitution the way that we did. Furthermore, let's think a little bit about co constitutions. I noted that there was a reference to a constitution in the Declaration even before the, you know, the Constitution, the American Constitution, was, was crafted and ratified. What do you think about that? What, what, what did they mean when they referred to a constitution before a constitution? I, I think it was the English Constitution, the Bill of Rights. But it wasn't written. They didn't have a written constitution. No, but it was, I guess, for lack of better words, parliamentarians. There were yeah, there were certain patterns... There are certain ways of doing things. So this is the thing to keep in mind. When you, think, when you hear the word constitution, we as Americans immediately go to written. It's not the case. When someone said, you know, like maybe you've seen some old-fashioned movie or some, read some old book where a guy says, I'm heading out for my morning constitutional. What do you mean by that? <laughs> it means he's going for a walk. Right? Going for a walk. Why is he going for a walk? For his health. So, in other words, his body is organized in such a way that it has a constitution. The constitution of your body, when it's healthy, functions in a certain way. A political body has a constitution. So, you can write it down. In fact, the Founding Fathers wrote it down for a reason. They believed that they had something good and they wanted to preserve it. So they didn't actually think. Sometimes you'll, you'll hear people say, there was this radical experiment that they were performing. No, it wasn't. This was like stuff that they already believed. Why did they already believe it? Because it was their constitution already. They, they put it into words. They codified it so they wouldn't forget it. Huge difference. The French did invent it out of thin air. And we saw what happened. There was a stupid idea that we could go over to Iraq and impose you know, our constitution on them. How'd that work out? There were lots of people who warned us we shouldn't try it because that's not how human societies work. You just can't, like, shove democracy down someone's throat. There's a certain cultural ethos and environment within which people behave democratically because that's their constitution. And it takes a long time for a constitution to to sort of take sort of its, its effect, and it grows and develops. But they had come to a point where they said, we've got a bunch of precious stuff here. We can't forget it. We're going to write it down, and we're going to hold ourselves to this. Now, can you see where this might be sort of an interesting conundrum for us today? Do you think maybe that things have changed in the way people think today? Away from the right. In fact, there's a marvelous book 
In fact, Steve and I were just talking about it yesterday, Christopher Caldwell's uh, The Age of uh, Entitlement, where he talks about the second constitution that was instituted by the progressives in the early 20th century, you know, infamously uh, by Woodrow Wilson and that gang. So now we have the administrative state, a.k.a. the deep state, who really run the country. And every once in a while, people say, hey, that's not constitutional. <laughs> and what do they mean by that? I mean that our original constitution and the new constitution don't jibe. And that's just the way, you know, so that a lot of the tension, a lot of the fighting in our, in our, in our political environment is due to that. There are people who are just fine with the new constitution, but it was never ratified. It was just sort of like sort of developed and embraced by certain classes of people in our society. Anyway, so that, those are important things to keep in mind when we think about a constitution. And if we want to recover the original constitution, the first constitution, then there are certain theological truths that need to become more broadly accepted in our society if we're going to see that happen. Any questions about that? Why, um, why has the world come away from the Bible? That is sin, Molly. <laughs> yeah, because uh, we're reprobate minds, and uh, God has given us over to a reprobate mind, and there are a lot of things I preach about it every week, Molly. <laughs> what, what she asked <laughs> about? Oh, uh, I can't remember. I'm sick. You have to forgive me. <laughs> That's right. That's right. If it comes back to me, I'll I'll try to say it. <laughs> Yeah, Cindy. Oh, Cindy. 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 Yeah. Um, yeah. Are you uh, equating constitution with worldview, or what would would you say those are different words? Or? Well, there's a, there's an important difference. Worldview is a is a term that was developed in the early 20th century that has a kind of more modern sort of basis. So um, I could go into that in great depth, <laughs> but the term is fine, but it does reflect that sort of way of sort of understanding the relationship of the human mind to the world, that our minds are kind of like a mirror, and we have a kind of view of things, but the mirror might be like a funhouse mirror, you know, that distorts things, and we're kind of living in our heads with maybe an inaccurate picture of the way the world actually is. So is Constitution more the way that we would work out our worldview? It is it's actually the way we would operate. Yeah, but the thing to keep in, the thing to keep in mind, Cindy, is that this is a political community. So, you know, you have people who maybe have different opinions about lots of things. And certainly the Founding Fathers, that was true for them. They didn't all see everything alike. Uh, but they had a certain set of institutions that, was the, that were the constitution of the political order. And, that, and, that, and those institutions had some, um, there, there, there was a way that they understood the, their, you know, how they would work and their purpose. Yeah, Richard. Uh, I'm re recalling that um, several years later, when uh, Oakville, Oakville was visiting here, yeah. he referred to uh, the American 
habits of the heart was yeah. the term. Is yeah. that what you're referring to here? Because I think he actually referred to that as an unwritten constitution. Yeah, so it does have to do with that. You know, so there are certain like patterns of way, ways of feeling and thinking and so forth. Habits of the Heart, by the way, uh, was the title of a book that was published in the 80s. It's really a great book um, by a guy named Robert Bella. When? Uh, in the 1980s. So, so taking off on his, his taken off in that on that phrase. Yeah, he was 1830s, so this would be 1980s. So I just remember he spoke very clearly about a, a uh, an unwritten constitution for yeah. the American people. Yeah, and I think that that basically at that time that's the way they would talk about constitutions, generally speaking. In other words, the American Constitution was a little unusual insofar as it had been written down. There was a kind of common law tradition in other parts of the world that. So is that what the uh, Declaration is referring to? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so there was nothing written down. You know, there were important events, you know, certain things like Magna Carta and so forth, but, but it wasn't like that's our Constitution written out with all the particular things. So what follows is if these are the habits of the heart, and we know that the heart is... Deceitfully uh, wicked. <laughs> right. Well, this, the book, uh, Habits of the Heart, so it was a group of sociologists in the, in the mid-1980s who, who identified uh, four types of Americans. And uh, I, they're still with us. So they said it's basically individualism and, and, and community uh, and how they relate to each other. So there are two destructive ways that they can sort of be expressed, this relationship between the community and the individual, in two positive ways. So... They, they identified the positive ways is what they refer to as biblical individualism and republican individualism, and the destructive ways as, um, if I remember, the, it was uh, expressive individualism and I think pragmatic individualism or commercial individual. So basically what they did is they said, and they gave you def, kind of different persona. So like uh, they said, uh, Cotton Mather, biblical individualism. In other words, the, com- the community is like a body. Everybody has a, a role to play. Everybody's pursuing their, you know, sort of um, using their gifts. And they built, the, com- the community is built up. Not just as a church, but as a, even a larger community. Republican individualism is, you know, what you see with, say, someone like Ben Franklin or Thomas Jefferson. They're thinking more in sort of classical, uh, you know, sort of, for, you know, antiquity those categories, like the Roman Republic and stuff like that. But they're still very much the same dynamic. Maybe, you know, I, I, I get involved with the local school board because it's important for me to make a contribution to the community. That's kind of the Republican way of thinking about it. So uh, I think it was P.T. Barnum that they gave as an example for uh, one of the bad ones, where you just kind of use the community to get rich, you know. That basically, you know, you're just out for yourself. You're just out to make a buck. You just, what's that? Yeah, yeah. And then uh, expressive individualism would be like Walt Whitman, where it's just, it's all about me, baby, and expressing myself. There's this marvelous character in the book called Sheila. So they interview all these, these Americans, and they, they interview a woman named Sheila. And, she, and Sheila says, uh, I'm not really religious, but I'm spiritual. Have you heard this line before? Uh, I've got my own little religion, Sheilaism. <laughs> it was just like Sheilaism. And uh, it's just me, you know, and the spirit. 
<laughs> and then she describes you know what Sheilaism is. But basically, basically Sheilaism is like New Age. Sheilaism is like everywhere now. You know, in the 1980s, they could still make fun of Sheila. <laughs> Today, everybody would say, "Go for it, Sheila. You go, girl." You know that kind of thing. So, anyway, but the idea is that the community is just the the stage on which you put yourself on display. That's all it is. That's social media. It's all about you, baby. Putting yourself on display and looking for applause. I prefer Jesus Christ. Well, there you go. You're a biblical individualist, Molly. <laughs> yep. One thing, go back to the Constitution or the unwritten. I've never heard it stated that way or I've never even thought of it that way. I've always thought of the Constitution as a right, right down, but that's pretty intriguing. Um, but students of Dr. Grant throughout Giles Kurt will, will know that he taught a couple of things that are very important about the beginning of America. One, it was not a revolution. Yeah. It was a covenantal renewal, as it were, or yeah. how does he put it, Cindy? Yeah, I think, so I think that's right. So it's a covenant renewal, and, and we're actually taking the king to court. Yeah. Because he's breached his covenant. Yeah. And so we're suing for liberty. The other thing about the, the Constitution unwritten, and, and the matters of the heart, is depends on which heart you're talking about, a depraved heart or a regenerate heart. And so if you go back to the original Westminster standards, were um, the, the backdrop of why people came across the country, um, whether it was the 1689 London Confession or it was the Westminster Convention, as we understand it, that was the, the mentality of, I think, the early pilgrims. Oh, yeah. Well, think about it this way. So we know that there were two books that Cromwell's men carried in their sacks. Bible, and you remember the other one? Uh, maybe it's all the Psalmly. I don't know. Vindicati I can't say it. It's a vindication of liberty against tyrants. Came out, it was Huguenots, who wrote, it was a Hugen, uh, Junius Brutus, uh, which is a, um, uh, a nom de plume, you know, because he didn't want to get killed, I guess. <laughs> but basically, it was uh, written by Calvinists in France. Uh, and it's, if you get a chance to read it, it's not a, a light read. It's pretty dense, fairly long, very thorough, like all of the stuff from that time. Um, and you have to follow the argument, arguments very closely. But uh, not only did uh, you know, Cromwell's troops carry it, um, it was in the library of Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and all the founding fathers. They all read it. And it, they put, it's put exactly in those terms. This is covenant. This is a covenant, and the the king has violated the terms of the covenant. So anyway, so the framework then is important for us to think about with regard to how we understand our our constitution. So uh, let's go back to the Declaration and look at a few terms that are used right in the first paragraph. There, um, it talks about. Uh, laws of nature and of nature's God. Laws of nature and nature's God. Now, some people treat this as though it's just a mere flourish. You know, they're just being wordy and flowery. No, this is actually the basis for their case. They're saying 
there are certain things that are so, and one of those things is there are laws of nature. Now, when they're referring to laws of nature, they're not talking about gravity. That's an important thing to think. They're talking about moral laws that are natural. So they're saying these are the basis for our case against the crown. Uh, there are laws of nature, and then they refer to nature's God, which, again, ties together the, the reason why nature has moral law. Laws implicit are sort of built into them, or uh, nature has these, has these laws built into it, is because it's a creation. So we live in a creation. So the Declaration of Independence uh, assumes that the world that we're in is created. It's not an accident. It's not something that uh, is just the result of natural forces, sort of like, uh, sort of, sort of just kind of working themselves out without direction. Um, there is something meaningful to the world that we live in, and this is uh, the basis for their entitlement. So let, let me read that. Uh, we t- where they're, ta- they're talking about separating from the uh, United Kingdom or, or England at this point. And they're talking about attaining a separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. Okay, so people just you know just fly right through that and don't see that the case that's being made is a theological case. We live in a creation. There is a creator. There is the world that we live in is meaningful. And we can apprehend that meaning. That's implicit. We can, we can see the meaning. And I'll get to that more in a minute. But that's the basis. So uh, this is not just we want this. This is not just because we've, this is, we're, we're used to doing things a certain way and we don't like the, the way things are changing. That's not it. They're saying there's a moral case that we're making here and it has to do with God and it has to do with creation. So, and I'll get to the implications for this in a little bit because it puts atheists in a pretty weird spot. But I'll get to it. I get to that later. Any any thoughts or comments at this point? Now we get to the, the part that's you know you know recited all the time. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Now truths. We're talking about things that are so that are objectively the case, not our opinions, not uh, what we wish to be so, but are real. These are truths. Now, there's, a, there's an important thing to note here when it comes to a truth. A truth is more uh, significant than a fact. They're not the same. They're not synonymous. A truth has moral content. A fact is just simply an observation about a phenomenon something that's occurred. In fact, in fact, <laughs> they use the word fact a little later. I mean, so at the very end of that paragraph, uh, this has been divided into paragraphs. If you look at the original declaration, it's just like everything is all one sentence. You know? But so uh, to prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. <laughs> so he starts, they start off with truths and then they get to facts. So they use the facts to further their argument of it intended to sort of justify their interpretation that 
the truths have been lost. They've not been observed. They've not been uh, followed. So a truth, then, is uh, what our order is based on, and we, and we have the capacity to see the truth because these truths are self-evident. So I'll go back to the statement here. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Now, what, is the, what does that mean? What is, what is self-evidence? Yeah, Dean. Uh, things that we know within ourselves, and we, we, just, we just know it. Yeah, we just know it. In other words, it's so obvious that only a moron would deny this. <laughs> that's, that's actually what it, it means. <laughs> so these things are just obvious. And these are the starting point. Now, if you're into, say, presuppositional apologetics, you could say the presuppositions. You know, these are our presuppositions. Um, but another way to think about it is these are the truths that it must be so for us to be able to assert the truth of anything else. You get rid of these truths, you can't know anything. That's another way to think about self-evidence. They provide the basis for knowing anything else. There's a marvelous illustration that C.S. Lewis provides when he's talking about uh, why he believes uh, the gospel, why he's a Christian. He talks about he's, uh, uh, an experience he had in a shed. So he's in the shed, and apparently there's a hole in the shed, and the sunlight is, is you know, coming through the hole. And, and because of that, he can see the contents of the shed. But when he looks up through the hole at the sun, it's blinding. He can't see it. He says, I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun. Not because I can see it, but, 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 but by its light, I see everything else. So self-evident truths are like that. Yep, Steve. I just wanted to. Uh... By the way, we have a uh, moral philosopher and historian with us. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to uh, read Jefferson's original words. Okay. You would have it on your phone. <laughs> yeah, speak up, Steve. We hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable that all men are created equal and independent. That from that equal creation, they derive rights inherent and inalienable, among which are the preservation of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So that just goes to show committees kind of like ruin everything, you know. <laughs> you know, because that, you know, when you talk about sacred, you know, you're, you're making again another connection to God. Anyway, so important stuff to, to, to note. Um, so uh, self-evident that all men are created equal. Now, what did, what did they mean by equal? Yeah, David. Uh, they were equal under the law. Equal under the law and before God. Uh, the kind of equality that we're pursuing today is not that. It's uh, a, something more ambitious, less realistic not true. <laughs> so anyway, so here's something. I, I, I'm, I'm, for my candidacy, I'm going to be having an event on Wednesday that you're all invited to. It's going to be over here at the Battleground Community Center. It's going to start, I think, at 5. But one of the things I was thinking about doing was read, I was thinking about reading Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut because it's making fun of this very thing. So if, if you're familiar with Kurt Vonnegut, you know, he's known for writing all sorts of things. He's an immigrant to the United States, by the way. He survived, the, the, I think, of the bombing of Dresden during World War II. But um, 
Harrison Bergeron is, is a short story that's kind of intended to be a parody. It's a, kind of a comment on things. It was uh, actually published in 1961, which goes to show just how far back the, the insanity goes. The year was 2081, and everybody was finally equal. They weren't only equal before God and the law, they were equal every which way. Nobody was smarter than anybody else. Nobody was better looking than anybody else. Nobody was stronger or quicker than anybody else. All this equality was due to the 211th, 212th, and 213th Amendments to the Constitution (laughs) and to the unceasing vigilance of the agents of the United States Handicapper General. Some things about living still weren't quite right, though. April, for instance, still drove people crazy by not being being springtime. And it was in that clammy month that the H.G. men took George and Hazel Bergeron's 14-year-old son, Harrison, away. So the reason they take Harrison away is he's incredibly good-looking. He's very tall. He's very athletic and very strong. (laughs) He is public enemy number one. And so the, so the way the story unfolds is that because uh, George is more intelligent than other people, he has to wear like things in his ears that scatter his thoughts because it would be unfair for him to be able to, to think things that other people can't think. And they're watching a television show of this ballerina who's got weights on her body because it would be unfair for her to be more graceful <laughs> than anybody else. And she's got this hideous mask because it would be unfair for her to be more beautiful than anybody else. And, and anyway... What happens in the film, or in, on the film, it actually became a film. Harrison Bergeron became a film. But uh, what happens is that uh, Harrison uh, escapes, and it's like a national crisis. Harrison's on the run. And uh, the way the, the story ends is he, he actually breaks into the, the television studio and rips. He has like this clown nose on, and he's got all these weights, more weights than anybody's ever seen, because <laughs> he's just so strong and everything. And he just rips them all off and rips off his nose, and he declares himself emperor of the world. <laughs> it's, 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 kind of, it's, it's all meant to be kind of fun, but it's intended to give you this sort of the absurdity, or sort of illustrate the absurdity of taking equality to... Into, into things that just deny reality. At the end, Harrison is killed by uh, Diana Moonglampers <laughs> with a shotgun. Uh, she's the uh, handicapper general. <laughs> anyway, and then uh, the, his parents see it happen on television and they're crying, but they can't remember why. That's the way it ends. So, we'll take all those things off someday. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. Right. So we hold these truths to be self-evident. These are another thing is these are not perceptions, um, just and not just interpretations. Um, and truths carry moral weight. I mentioned that before, and that and that these are things that uh, the Continental Congress uh, are ref- are referring to in the we in the plural, in terms of themselves. We hold these truths to be self-evident, not only speaking for themselves, but speaking for the people of the United States. The Continental Congress had some uh, massive deliberations. In fact, it was just like, you know, 1789, except not yet ratified. So, I mean, there had to be some, you know, there was the, uh, there was a lot of declarations that they used, uh, you know, 
know, so they have to be referring to something. Yeah, it wasn't as though they were saying we're the only people in the world that believe this. What, what they're saying is that, you know, people should believe these things because they're true. And there are other people who do. So, so the idea of um, let the law be key, kind mm -hmm. of Rex by Rutherford, that, that to me seems to be the backdrop of our country. And, it, and it's still protected by this document and the Constitution, but particularly, I believe, this, this creed. Oh yeah, I think because it provides us with a way of interpreting the Constitution, so we understand its its uh, moral framework. So um, now we're told in the Declaration Two that we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. This is another really important uh, statement. So it appeals to the design of the world and the designer, the creator. This is, a, this is we're saying, this is not just something we worked out as a bunch of people that we think is a good idea. Uh, this is the very meaning of reality, the, the, the nature of things. Unalienable means, obviously, they can't be alienated. They can't be taken away because why? It's pretty straightforward. What would be the reason? They're given by God. The government didn't give them. Government doesn't take what it doesn't give. Well, it shouldn't. <laughs> but even if it attempts to, it doesn't negate the fact that they're unalienable. Yep, Dan. Do these atheists that embrace uh, what Christianity has done, do they just see these as the community coming up with these good ideas that just happen to work? I think that's part of it. I think part, partly, too. So what's happening... Uh, Many of these, uh, many, many atheists who have been what we refer to in um, philosophy as positivists, who believe that only things that can be empirically demonstrated are true, are, have come to see that the woke, in particular, are a threat to the scientific enterprise. That's the, that's the fascinating thing. When, you know, like a school district down in Portland says, you know, two plus two equals four is white supremacy which they actually say. So I remember back in the day when, when you know, guys like in our world, the humanities, would t talk to the people over in the sciences and the STEM world about the threat. They would just brush it off. Ah, that's something we never need to think about. Everyone knows that you know, math is objective. And we'd say, no, we've actually talked to these people. They don't think it is. We talk to them all the time. They're coming for you. And they would, ha, 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 alarmism. <laughs> now they're alarmed. They really are. I mean, they're writing articles in, like, Wall Street Journal and The Economist about how wokeism is a threat to our civilization at a technical level. So what they're saying is our only allies, in fact, this marvelous article that, that we use as the basis for our conversation in the Theology Podcast, come out tomorrow, come out tomorrow. Uh, this is an atheist who's saying, we have to support the Christian right. They're the only hope. Yep, David. That just seems to just remind me of our founding fathers where you had a, a strong Christian group of men who were sort of aligned, the, the Benjamin Franklins of the world were aligned themselves with the Witherspoons uh, simply for the same thing you're talking about. It seems like the intellectuals are always riding on our coattails for survival's sake. 
but they do come together in times of crisis. It seems very strange. Well, Richard Dawkins' assistant just became a Christian. Richard Dawkins, the guy who wrote Blind Watchmaker, then one of the famous, his assistant. But Richard Dawkins has been actually sounding very different lately over these very things. He, he's not just worried about the woke, he's worried about the Muslims. So, yeah, yeah. Can you address the idea of a living constitution? Yeah. And how a lot of people want to say that it's flexible to sure. our modern understanding? Basically, they don't like the original. <laughs> and so they want to say, well, we're not going to be constrained by that. And what, the, what that implies is that there are no truths, really. It's just kind of what we make up as we go along, which they don't, what they don't get into is the fact that that means that we just ultimately are in a power game. So it's whoever's running the show at the moment. So, so one can outright say the concept of living constitution is just erroneous. Yeah, I think that's right. I think... It, uh, now, you could say we didn't have a full understanding of the truths. I think I'd be fair to say. We could criticize maybe the founding fathers for being inconsistent, which they were at times, you know, obviously slavery being a famous example. Um, but what you can't say is that um, if you're not going to have truths at all, that you can base your society on anything besides just who's in charge at the moment. Yep, Dan. Speaking of the Muslims, I find it absolutely astonishing and absolutely surreal that the Muslims are actually the ones who are coming out and shutting these. Well, I'm not surprised at all if you know anything about them. <laughs> Saying you're not doing this in our, in our city. Well, so you bought in, apparently, I don't want to put words in my but apparently you've bought into the, the, the thinking of the woke. The woke have this weird idea that the Muslims are on their side. Yeah. The Muslims are extremely conservative people. That's, that's what I'm getting at. So they, they are not happy at all with this. Now, they don't like the fact that they're being co-opted and used as a justification for some of this stuff. Um, and they've gotten to a point where they're just so sick of it, they're willing to actually do some protesting. Yeah, it's, it's kind of fun. It's, so, like, when you think about... So this is another thing. You know, I, I have a background with, you know a lot of this stuff on the left. I lived in Cambridge, for goodness sake, for a decade, and I was involved with poverty issues and talked about all this stuff with those people. Uh, you could even say that I was you know, sort of on the same page with certain things for a while. But one of the things that always sort of blindsides the left is that the point of resistance is not where they, th where they think it's always going to be. They always think it's going to be some white Christian guy. So, that, so like, if, just, if you take a look at what happened in the uh, United Methodist world here within the past couple of years, who were the conservatives who were fighting against the left? The Africans. Africans? People from Africa. So Methodism is very strong in Africa. And it's very conservative and it's very uh, orthodox. Now, they have their own challenges there, but when it comes to, say, sexual ethics, they have got no tolerance for the nonsense that's coming out of the United States and Europe. Zero. And so the worldwide Methodist communion has splintered. And basically the global south is where Orthodox Methodists still live. 
almost everybody up here, you just go over here to this little Methodist church. I can't remember what road it's on. It's got a little rainbow thing. You know, it's like everywhere in the United States. The conservative Methodists. Well, I have a friend who is a conservative Methodist, and he was just uh, kicked out of his church by his bishop, liberal bishop. Yeah. The Africans are the ones. Yeah, so I, I remember the Connecticut Six, we were the ones that protested Eugene Robinson, the, the homosexual bishop for, that was uh, installed or yeah, uh, enthroned in, in New Hampshire. Uh, they led the, the breakaway that it led to the ACNA, which exists today. So he was actually on a board of a, comp- of a, of, of a, of a, a nonprofit that I established. His name was Christopher Layton. He was a lot of fun. His, uh, one of his... One of his parishioners was Bill Weld. Anybody remember Bill Weld? He ran for president, libertarian, governor of Massachusetts, responsible for the big dig. Anyway, so, uh, so his church was in like this really ritzy part of Cambridge. And uh, Bill Weld came to church on like Easter or Christmas or something like that. And he walks up to Christopher and says to Christopher, you know who I am? And Christopher said, yeah, do you know who I am? <laughs> kind of put it, framed it a little differently. <laughs> yeah, Mark. Just going back to what you started with in terms of the atheist um, and seeing Christ saying that the kingdom of God is going to be like a mustard seed that grows into a great tree yeah. that fills the earth and all the birds of the air come and rest, rest in its branches. Right, right. Um, but that's what he's doing. Yeah. And that's what you're describing these others are doing as well. And so that's, it's, there's real opportunity for hope oh, yeah. in seeing that in our day of, of those who have turned away from God and have seen the tyranny that has come from it yeah. and are coming back and calling themselves atheists and resting in the branches of Christianity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Christian atheists. I've actually heard that term. I'm a, I'm a Christian atheist. <laughs> the God I don't believe in is the Christian God, but I really like a lot of things. <laughs> they're not far from the kingdom of God. Right, that's right. They're resting in its branches. Right, right. Well, let's, uh, let's think about uh, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness a little bit. So life, obvi- you know, undeniably... Uh, is something we don't give ourselves, right? We just are alive. Say, you know, it's more marvelous to see little people kind of becoming more and more aware of, wow, I'm alive. <laughs> That's what growing up is about. You know, I'm, here I am. Now, liberty, and we've talked about this before, liberty is not just license to just do anything you please. It's, liberty has always been understood as be, have, having, a, having moral content, just like nature has moral content, liberty has moral content. So it's the exercise of your freedom for the goods of the world. Your own good, of course, but you can get good wrong. You know, I've got, gone into that a lot, and you can, you can get it right. Now, happiness, this is perhaps a word that needs some um, development uh, for people today because when uh, they hear it, I think their minds go to a kind of subjective sort of, uh, sort of uh, sense of bliss. You know, I just kind of feel good, I'm happy. But that's not really what the founders had in mind when they used the term. In fact, uh, do you remember what the... Well, it was John Locke. He's the one who famously said, life, liberty, but he didn't use happiness. Property. property. Life, liberty, and property. 
So when, say, Klaus Schwab for the, for the World Economic Forum says, you know, you know, the year is 2030 and you own nothing and you'll be happy, it's like, that's like something that in classical philosophy, like, what? That's like, yeah, it's like completely opposite of what people thought and have thought forever as being sort of significant in terms of being happy. Um, so happiness is, is essentially uh, best understood in terms of uh, pursuing the good, uh, not only for yourself, but for the community at large. Yep, David. So the philosophy that I, when I learned that those three, three phrases of uh, life, liberty, property, they're, they're almost, they, they have to be almost linked together because without, without property, you can't even have freedom. Right. And you can be a slave and still have life, yeah. and you can have the liberty to serve God, but in the American system, the American creed, we need to have the ability to get property if we so choose. Right, right. What's, what is the proletariat? It's uh, those who have no property. It's like when you hear, you know, Communist Manifesto, you know, it's referring, when it, the term proletariat is used, that was a term that, the, that Romans used in the census for a particular kind of person, person who wasn't a slave but had no property. And that sort of person is very vulnerable, very easily influenced. <coughs> anyway, anything else about that before we jump forward? Yeah. I just envision that both the Declaration and the Constitution, um, from the standpoint of, let's say, some good Scottish Presbyterians and so forth, being in the middle of this, and then it being watered down into something that's acceptable to all of America as well as what they want to declare to the world, because they're entering into a political process here. They're going to go to war against the most powerful nation in the world. But when you boil those down, you have the nation of Israel coming under God as their king, and in terms of liberty is really the maintaining of the moral law. Happiness is property. They're all given a land. They're given a law, and they're given land, and essentially pulling from the Westminster Confession, the, the principles of the law and the general equity and the maintenance of that, and just seeing that coming forth here, but being put into these words rather than into something that would be so plain from a confessional. Yeah, well, you got a bunch of Anglicans in the room. Exactly. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're already dealing with a fairly mixed bunch. I mean, you know, and think about Adams and Franklin. You know, they're kind of questionable, you know, in certain ways. Doesn't it sound kind of Unitarian at times, the Declaration? Well, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't make a reference to the to the covenant explicitly. Authority, kind of stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, deism is uh, in the air. Um, I think the Unitarian uh, outlook develops from deism. But there's still enough. So that, in other words, we're not denying that there is a God. Um, we're saying that there is. And... Um, what you have later with the French Revolution is a very forthright denial. And then 
with Marxism. But that is a revolution. Right. That was a French revolution. Would, would deism, though, say, um, firm reliance on the protection of divine providence? Yeah, I, I do think that that is more in the spirit of you know Presbyterianism. Yeah. So I think that there's there's probably some some debate uh, at you know over language and. And at that moment, the Presbyterians prevailed. <laughs> that kind of thing. And even Locke, Locke's writing, which was appealed to a lot by Jefferson and others when writing the Declaration, was raised by Calvinistic. Oh, yeah. Writers. And so some might would say you shouldn't use John Locke. But, well, no, he, his whole principles were based upon. Well, when you think about like a like an ethos, intellectual sort of atmosphere that you're you're living in and, and working in, there are lots of things you take for granted that maybe uh, other things that you believe maybe are in some tension with it, with those things. So I, I, you know, I think that at any given time you can you, you shouldn't look for a sort of a pure uh, like consistency of thought. Um, there's a there are a set of things that they sh- they all agreed on, uh, and the language that they hammered out. Um, is something that they could all give assent to. Yep, there is. Uh, thank God for the, the state charters before all this because they were so drenched with uh, Christian. Oh, yeah, you look at Connecticut. This, by the way, one of, is one of the things that I, I think that maybe defenders of the Second Amendment ought to consider. Um, Vermont was a separate nation for 14 years. Look, it's like Texas. And in their original uh, constitution, the right to bear arms explicitly is for self-protection. It's not connected to a militia at all. And that's why Vermont is open carry to this day, even in spite of Bernie Sanders. I think it's important to look at that phrase, pursuit of happiness, both as Jefferson used it and as Locke. Um, he wasn't talking about uh, the happiness that we think of today is happiness. Right. And you used the word a while ago, I think Locke actually used the word uh, profit. He's not talking about monetary profit yeah. or property or owning land or anything like that. What he's talking about is the highest good of mankind. So what profits man, it's, it's, not, it's not all these things. It's like, um, you know, we, we desire things sometimes that are not good for us. Yeah, yeah. And, and Locke was talking about those things that are the best good for us. So it's, it's man's highest, uh, highest good or highest happiness. Right. Ooh, I'm going. A little, I'm already past time. That was good stuff. But I do want to bring out a couple of things as I wrap up. Um, to, to, the purpose of government is to secure the rights of the people who have those rights directly from God. So the the, the government doesn't uh, grant the rights can't rescind the rights, but can protect the rights and should. So that's the nature of government, is to protect the rights. Um, that uh, also, the, uh, within this, in, in it's explicit but implicit here, is that um, you know, the consent of the governed is uh, at work. So there is an authority that the people possess that uh, is given to them by God because of their rights, that they can, and they can exercise their rights uh, against the governing authority, which is what you see, actually see right here. See, this is a thing that sometimes we, we miss. So when the administrative state says, do this, and there's not even been a, you know, a deliberation, the people haven't even taken up the matter, 
the government has overstepped its bounds. But that's because you know we have a second constitution that's kind of laid over the first and is in uh, conflict with it. Um, but there are a couple of things to note, and there's certain ironies. And one of those ironies is what I noted earlier, is that, that both uh, believers and atheists have rights uh, granted to them by God. So uh, we need to uh, sort of uh, honor the right, well, not sort of, but we need to honor the rights of people who fail to appreciate the basis of their rights. So we're, we're, in a sense, constrained in a way that those other folks are not. <laughs> in other words, they can say, well, rights are just a human convention, and I don't think that we need those anymore. Therefore, I'm going to take them from you and shut you up and shut you down and so forth, which we, we see in, you know, in totalitarian regimes all the time. Nevertheless, we can't, do this, can't return the favor because we're... Uh, restrained from doing so because we believe that they have inalienable rights. Um, and this also brings up the, the odd thing that, that unbelievers uh, rely on a political order that presumes a God. So there's a kind of inter, inner contradiction here that sometimes works itself out in some unfortunate ways. Another thing that's possible is a kind of atomization where people use... Uh, their uh, desires to, and, and things that they want to indulge in, and uh, they uh, appeal to their rights to do so against the sort of the wisdom of the of the community and the society as a whole. So, uh, our political order assumes that there are uh, pre-political institutions. That's just a way that some people refer to uh, things like family. So a family is a pre-political institution in the sense that family is assumed to be uh, a a reality and a good one, and our political order should acknowledge that. But there are people who who have used and are using uh, the language of rights to break down family life, uh, undermine it, and so forth. So there's another tension. And this this is the sort of thing that the Founding Fathers could not have foreseen. There have been intellectual developments in the last 200 years that they did not anticipate. And there are challenges today uh, from parts of our society which use the, uh, well, our, our political tradition against our society. That's, a, that's something that, that is difficult to, to, to deal with. But uh, the last thing I want to leave you with is this uh, reference to a long train of abuses and usurpations. So usurpations is the term that I think is worth reflecting on. So a usurpation, of course, is when you take something that doesn't belong to you. You usurp the authority of another. You take what uh, doesn't belong to you, and that's what's being condemned in the Declaration uh, by the Founding Fathers when they're talking about uh, the, the, the British and the, the Crown. Um, but that can happen today. Uh, so the Declaration is something that we can appeal to with regard to the usurpation of our, well, our rights, uh, the importance of consent, and that kind of thing. Um, whereas, you know, it's sort of the new Constitution or the second Constitution that Christopher Caldwell talks about in his book, uh, Age of Entitlement. Um, you don't have that. It's basically ruled by experts. 
which is kind of the return of the aristocracy in a new form, and that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> Any thoughts as we wrap up? Yep, Steve. Well, I'm, what to me is striking is that uh, historically, uh, this is like kind of like an apex in some ways uh, when, when this was founded. I mean, there, there weren't very many things like that prior to that, and it's very unique. Founded on Christian foundations, and uh, it was in many ways really precious to us. And prior to that, there was just hardly anything like it at all. Well, I would say yes and no. I would say uh, the founders would say that the rights that they possessed were the rights of Englishmen. So there was a sense in which, uh, because they were, well, if you read the Declaration, all of the things that are noted as you know, sort of misuses of the Crown's authority uh, have to do with a failure to uh, honor the rights that they believed that they already possessed. But, but there's still, still a good point. What's the operative word after that, you think? <clears throat> it's tyranny to me. Yeah. It's interesting that you're writing this book, and really what you're talking about is is what the, our forefathers um, broke covenant with, I guess, or made it break covenant, keep it, but the usurpations were the tyranny of King George. Right, right. By the way, so I'm going to be meeting with the, uh, the uh, Clark County Republican Committee on Thursday, and I can't be there. Well, we'll we'll say we'll we'll get a big cardboard standee of you and put you up in the room. <laughs> but anyway, I'm going to be the basis for my talk is going to be what I just talked about. So, what's Wednesday night? Wednesday night is here in Battleground, uh, and that's going to be at five o'clock at the Brem. It's just me talking about my candidacy. So it's just kind of an event for people who might be interested in learning about it. The other is going to be with the Clark County Republican Committee. So that you can be recognized. So I can be recognized and they can support me if they want. <clears throat> so they might not. <laughs> it's their prerogative. But anyway, I'll be the only one that's talking. So, Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day to worship you. We're glad, Lord, too, that we live in a country that has been... Uh, has enjoyed the leavening influence of the Christian faith in its political institutions. Um, pray, Lord, that in our time that you'll help us to, to uh, be sound in our thinking and uh, virtuous in our behavior, and uh, that we would glorify you in all we do uh, as citizens. In Christ's name, amen.